welcome to Martin Business Digital Entrepreneur Podcast. In today's episode, we got TJ Highland. TJ is the Director of Global Partnerships at Elevate Brands. Elevate Brands is buying, launching, operating, and optimizing, and rapidly scaling e-commerce brands with a focus on the Amazon platform. Welcome, TJ. Okay, welcome to Margin Business Digital Entrepreneur Podcast. Uh, I'm very happy to have TJ here today. Um, TJ will gonna tell us more about his uh, professional uh, life, his way to success, and uh, how everything happened from the beginning uh, up, to, up to today. So yeah, welcome uh, TJ. Um, please give us more details about where you are today and how did you got uh, where you are today actually? Yeah, well, well first off, thank you for having me. Uh, it's, a, it's an honor, so I appreciate that. Uh, right now, I'm the Director of Global Partnerships at Elevate Brands. What we do at Elevate is we acquire uh, and operate businesses that are generally based on Amazon, uh, but, you know, e-commerce businesses in general. Uh, so, you know, what my role is there is looking to, to partner with other organizations that have their clients and have the sort of trust and respect of their clients and have them be advocates for Elevate, right? And, you know, I've been in this, the Amazon world and the e-commerce industry since 2014, and, and we can go into that a little bit, but, That's you know, I, I've made a, a number of connections and, Well, from, from our perspective, you know, 2014, especially in the Amazon world, is a very, very long time ago. And, and there's not a lot of people that yes. are, 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 were around back then, still around today, right? And for a variety of reasons. So it's a bit of a, a different group of people, um, but I am honored to be, you know, in that world. And, and obviously, we can talk a little bit deeper about how I got to, to where I am. Sure, that will be very interesting. Um, let's begin from yeah, kind of the start. Where, where did you grow up? And um, uh, your the school time is there? Uh, I mean, city or whatever you have information for sure. us, what could be helpful? Yeah, so I was born and raised in in New York City. Uh, I lived here for the first okay. uh, 18 years of my life. Um, it's actually where I am right now, but it's not where I normally am. Uh, so I'm, I'm just here for the week. Uh, normally, I'm, I'm based in Austin, Texas. So okay. a little bit different than New York. But yes. uh, for, for university, I went to school in, in Washington, D.C. Um, and I studied international business there and, and uh, had a minor in Spanish, which I definitely lost a little bit. I know I wish I hadn't, but um, it's definitely useful in, in business conversations, right? And anytime yes. you can add a, another level definitely. and, you know, more languages and more opportunities to connect to people, you know, that's really incredibly valuable. Um, also, when I was in uh, university, I studied abroad in, in Spain, in Madrid. So not, not too far from, from where I believe you are, Omar, right? Exactly. Yes. What did you study in Spain, actually? Sorry to interrupt your video. I just wanted to let you know that I really appreciate you having you here today watching this video right now. And I wanted to let you know that Margin Business can help you to scale your business through optimized listings, localized listings, and translations. If you want to know more, just go to marginbusiness.com and we are happy to reply to any of your questions. Now, I will let you watch your video. One more thing. 
If you like our content, please hit the subscribe button and give us a thumbs up. Thank you and enjoy. Um, so it was just a continuation of the studies that I was doing in, in okay. the U.S. So it was all of our classes totally in Spanish. So okay. you know, wow. I had a business class and an art history class and um, what else do we have? You know, I mean, it's it was not typical university, right, where like the art history class, you spent a lot of the times at the museums, but like, you know, you're there and that's where the, the works of art are. So it's a little bit different. Um, but, you know, the business classes were very much just regular business types of marketing and this, that, and the other classes just in Spanish. So it was really interesting to, to learn. Uh, obviously, culturally is different too, right? The way the Europeans and Spaniards do business compared to the way the Americans do business. So yes, that part was, was very, um, very eye-opening, I think. Yeah. So in Madrid, you have been studying how, how many years? No, I was just there for six months. Okay, not, six not months. Not very but, long. But, yeah. but still six months. Uh, I mean, this is like they've thrown you actually in the cold water. So they bring you over um, and then it's like everything in Spanish. I mean, it's uh, you must have been fluent after the six months in Spanish, actually. I was. Pretty I much. was. And I actually, when I was there, I was living with a family as well. So, you know, so you see, even when you yeah. like sort of left the, the classroom situation or the, or the school situation, you were still conversing in Spanish, you know, as much as they wanted to practice their English with me, you know, they, they understood that it was really for me to, to learn more yes. Spanish. So definitely, you know, as a, you know, young kids, I think they were probably like eight, 10 and 12 years old at the time or something like that. Um, so they loved that fact and, and it was pretty awesome. But uh, yeah, I really, you know, like you said, when I left there, I was definitely fluent in Spanish. Unfortunately, I haven't had the opportunity to continue that on a, on a daily basis so I have lost York? a little bit. No, not really. No. Really? Yeah. Okay. I, so, th I thought like New York is pretty bilingual, you know, in, uh, in Spanish. Well, New York is very multilingual, right? Okay. So you go walk okay. down the street and hear 10 different languages. Okay. But, you know, I definitely didn't do it right after I came back. So I, I still have the ear for it. The, the tongue is, is what's lacking, I think. <laughs> okay. That, that's already, I, I think that's amazing, you know, when you do the... Uh, some studies abroad and really, um, especially in, in, in countries like Spain and France, um, mm. definitely they don't speak any other language. So, um, right. or they don't want to. So then you're forced to speak their language. And when you're young, you can have like in a, in a very small uh, amount of time, you can be very fluent in that language. Um, well, it's interesting you say that because, um, my grandfather had done international business for a long time. And when okay. I was studying, um, our family came over to visit and we met with a, a guy and his family who was his biggest client in Spain. Um, and we sat down at dinner and my family didn't speak Spanish and their family didn't speak English. So I had to sit there and sort of translate back and yes. forth. So it was, it was a dinner and it was nice and it was like sort of social but it was also, you know, brought on by the, the business aspect and you know, culturally that kind of is where it connected to. Okay. I mean, like I said, it's uh, the, the cultural aspect is, is just amazing, you know, because here in Europe you have, you know, you know, you have seen it yourself. You can go from uh, two, 300 kilometers north uh, in a complete other culture while going five, 600 kilometers down, you're again in another culture. It's a, uh, it's it's completely uh, completely crazy. But when you when you flew back to United States to to New York, I suppose, 
Um, what did you do? Did you use your your skills in some way? I mean, in, in a job or or something where you could think like, yeah, this is something I could do or. Yeah, so I went back and I, I finished university in Washington, D.C., okay. um, and then I got into the the international business world. Uh, so I started working at a company called World First, which did cross-border payments, so foreign exchange, yes. you know, buying, selling currency. And then what I actually did was a, a subset of that, which was helping Amazon sellers or, or sort of online businesses that were listing and, and selling their products internationally. So if you think about it, you're a US-based business, you're listing your products on Amazon UK and Amazon Spain, you're, you're going to get paid in British pounds and in euros. Yes. Um, at the time, Amazon didn't even have a solution to help you convert your pounds and your euros back to dollars. Yes. You as the business owner had to figure that out or you wouldn't have been getting paid. So what yeah. World First did at the time was provide these businesses with local receiving accounts in the currencies in which they needed to receive those funds in and then convert them back to their home currency. Uh, so I did that for, for a number of years. And that's really how I got into the, the Amazon world and dealt with okay. sellers and learned there. Because what it was, was, you know, selling internationally <clears throat> was a big opportunity, right? You know, a lot of these brands pre-2014 had only really had the opportunity to sell into the US. And now it's like, Well, I know the Amazon platform. I know how rank works. I know how PPC. I know how all this works and I can leverage FBA. So what's the difference for me to send a package to a warehouse in Kentucky as it is to send one to London or to Madrid, right? When, yeah. when FBA was up and running. So, you know, that was really interesting for us. And from our perspective, you know, Amazon rolled out a, a solution to help a little bit after that and, you know, our solution was significantly cheaper than theirs, right? And so every conversation that we were having was about how we could help these businesses save money on every single transaction that they were making, right? And, and that adds up. So whether it's, you know, a smaller seller and it's just $1,000 over the month, you know, that's a big $1,000 for them. Or as you get to larger sellers where, you know, the savings over a month period could be 10, 20, 30, $40,000 or more, you know, that's more money that they can invest back into their business, right? So to, to go from slow growth to medium growth to hyper growth um, and to make sure you're capitalizing on this investment that you're taking internationally. Um, well, first, I think, I think they're, still, they're still there and they're, st they're very big um, as, as, as far as I remember, because um, back then, as you mentioned, there were only, it was only them And um, the Amazon market was a lot uh, more open, a lot easier to access. So the money flow was as well a lot. Uh, I mean, let's not say it was better, but it was, you know, it was more, um, I think, not regulated. Uh, right now, it's a lot more regulated, you know, before there was more ins and outs, you know. Yeah, just in general, you know, I would say selling online, selling on Amazon back in 2014, we... We used to call it in, in retrospect a bit of like the wild, wild west. Yes, there's, exactly. There's minimal <laughs> rules from Amazon, from other sellers, from you know, black hats and all this like yes, yes. things. It's like there, there was no real control, um, especially surrounding like VAT and taxes. And, and yeah, this like is, that. you know, <laughs> so, unfortunately, you know, world, it, it was yeah. it came heavy, heavy now, you know, but, you know, that's well, right. And I, I think that was a big 
pivot point uh, in the in the online selling world, right? Yes. And it was it started out of out of Europe actually, where the, the EU uh, said, "Hey, you as Amazon are making all these sales," and and that's where they it was one of those first court cases uh, where is it Amazon or is it the third party sellers, right? And yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what happened was Amazon was getting cracked down by the government. So then they said, you have to pay these taxes. You're responsible for all these sales. And they said, no, 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 we're not. All these sellers under us are, you know, they actually all operate their own business. You know, we're just the platform kind of like a pass through. And then at that point, Amazon had to crack down and make sure everyone had a VAT or EORI number and kind of really leveled the playing field for, in, in that instance, it was leveling it for local Europeans that had those numbers that were going to have to pay taxes anyway. And, you know, yep. there was definitely, and I don't know how many, but there was definitely American sellers and Chinese sellers and wherever that kind of floated under the radar for a while. Yes. And then once the crackdown came, it definitely leveled the playing field. And, and similarly in the U.S., right, a lot of the the local states in the year following, yes. maybe two years following, cracked down um, and introduced legislation where they would collect the sales tax before even dispersing the payment out. So, wow. you know, I think that was a, a big change in sort of leveling the playing field because if you are a Chinese seller, you know, and and you don't you're not paying VAT or taxes or anything, no matter where, mm-hmm. like you already have a leg up on the competition because you're you might be the manufacturer as well. So you could be the manufacturer without sort of the overhead of buying from the manufacturer and then not paying taxes. And then all these other things that you might be doing, you know, the cost really, really were low for them. And then the prices that they listed were low. So in that instance, you know, it was really interesting to see sort of a a very much a leveling of the playing field. And I, I think we're still really there today. Yes, we are. I think so as well. And uh, uh, at the same time with Amazon as well, the, the whole payment providers and everything they needed as well, obviously, to uh, to to be regulated, you know, so um, there were a lot. I think there were quite there were quite a few smaller ones. But now we have the stable big ones, which are still in the game and they provide uh, as well uh, amazing services. Um, just to mention quickly, not to mention any favoritism here, but you know it's uh, it's true. There, without them, uh, all the online, the whole online game would be down to banking, and uh, that would be terrible. You know, <laughs> so. Well, well, that, that's really where the, the the crux of this whole thing is. Right? You can sell as much as you want around the world, but if you're in a region in which you're not going to be able to get paid, then then you can't do it. Um, and a lot of time, the banking is is still very antiquated in in the whole scheme of things that a lot of these financial tools and fintech um, have really come in and sort of saved the day or at least bridged the gap, yes, right? So exactly. a lot of the fintech companies are not banks themselves. They are money service businesses, uh, but they're extremely regulated, right? And yes. uh, after World First, I, I moved over to Payoneer, which is a, a pretty well-known yeah. global company, right? Um, and, you know, they help millions of people around the world, oh, way yes. more than just Amazon sellers, right? So you're really connecting the world and allowing the, the freelancers in the Philippines and, you know, this dev uh, software developers in Ukraine and Argentina and wherever they may be. Service-based businesses, everything. Yeah. <clears throat> and then, you know, to give them the opportunity to make a, a living for themselves 
by potentially working online and working from their home. And you know, obviously we've seen everyone shift to, to a home model to a degree over the last 18 months or so with COVID, but you know, coming back even before that, you know, the ability to you know, work in, in the Philippines and be a freelancer and, and you know, work and help build a lot of these Amazon businesses are supported by VAs and freelancers. And yes. you know, it's you know, the, from a financial perspective, you know, the Amazon businesses couldn't operate without the VAs and, and vice versa, right? So the, the VAs have you know, uh, built an incredible business and the Philippines has an incredible reputation yes. for that, right? Definitely. Especially in the Amazon world. No, and for, for Pioneer as well, what is very uh, positive that, as you said already, they have connected the whole world, actually, you know, not only, not only Amazon, But, uh, you know, they came up with things which is still, wow, you know, it's uh, uh, the local bank accounts. I mean, others done it before, but uh, I, I think what Pioneer has done is it was very special, you know. Um, at the same time, they pushed out cards. Um, mm -hmm. you, could, you could wire within their system as well money, which is, which is as well uh, uh, not very common. I mean, uh, without paying fees, for example, it's... Uh, right. It's, it's, you know, it's like a big community for me, you know, it's a uh, uh, pioneer is one of my favorites. Uh, um, I mean, there is plenty other outside, but you know, it's uh, out there, but really it's, um, uh, it's one of the easiest and one of the fastest, you know, you can, you, you, you can go with, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, the Scott Gallet, who's the CEO there, you know, echoes that often, right. In, in terms of like bridging all the gaps and sort of opportunities for everyone and, and like I touched on all these people around the world to be able to get paid uh, and then also to pay right and and you touched on that you know in network payments they do for free they could absolutely charge yeah. a fee for that but you know yes, if you're paying <laughs> from from whomever to your freelancer to your supplier you want to be you want it to be as beneficial for the person receiving the money as it is for the person paying the money And then you want, you know, in, in a lot of regions in which banking is not as strong, you know, the card is an incredible asset. Um, yes. Like we talk about Southeast Asia, Latin America, um, Eastern Europe, you know, that's where the, the card usage is, is the highest for sure. Yeah, because, uh, you, you know, in some countries, it's just not uh, the most of the people don't have access to banking, you know, maybe right. some don't even know that this fact, you know, but uh, the uh, mostly around the world, there is so many people, you know, back in when I remember back in 2010, 2012, there was nobody, you know, there was the freelancers didn't know how to get their money, you know, there were still questions of the Western Union, which is completely backwards, you know, I was like, oh, that's, uh, that's, You know, not even having bank account is very. And I then I realized, you know, that people actually needed something like that, and 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 Pioneer just gave them what they actually needed, you know, and made it easy for every single one, even if they don't have a bank account access access uh, accessible, um, they could just easily uh, pull out money with their with their ATM card from all, all around the world. So definitely amazing. What what did you do there exactly? Yeah, so for Payoneer, I was the head of partnerships uh, for okay. North America. So, okay. you know, we actually did a, a number of projects to, to help businesses around the world. So, um, you know, the partnerships is, is one of those titles, which I, I now still have, but it, it's a bit undefined because um, okay. it, it can cover a lot of things, right? Yes. In reality, what it is, is, you know, connecting with other businesses um, to help their clients, Right. So one of the big projects that we worked on at 
Payoneer that I that I did was working with the the drop shipping world, right? So oh, okay. there's a, a ton of drop shippers based in Vietnam. It's a very hot market for for drop shippers in Southeast Asia in general. Um, but all the drop shipping companies that also do the fulfillment, um, sort of print on demand, really more than drop shipping, but print on demand are based in the U.S. So now what you have is a situation where the drop shipper is based in Vietnam, um, you know, has a bank account in and a credit card in Vietnamese dong, yeah. getting paid from Shopify or whatever payment provider in U.S. dollars, and they also have to pay per order to the print-on-demand company so that their orders can be processed. So without something like Payoneer, that would be a complete mess. And it's actually sure. be hectic for the print-on-demand company to be charging credit cards in Vietnamese dong too, right? <laughs> so um, what we did was we provided an, an integration which works where the Vietnamese seller's uh, Payoneer account is able to be charged directly by the print-on-demand company. So we provide them with a Payoneer USD account. They can hold all their funds from their Shopify, from their sales. And then anytime there's a transaction, it can charge directly from there um, and then go back, you know, when they wanted to withdraw okay. the funds back to their own bank account or to a card or whatever it may be. It's just essentially giving way more options uh, on this process. Okay, sounds, sounds really good. And how how did you manage afterwards uh, because you in the beginning you said you're working now with elevate brands um the jump because it's uh, from financial sector um to yeah to amazon aggregator um yeah. how how does that that jump happen that would be very interesting to know yeah so it 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 was a bit unexpected. I, I was not necessarily looking to, to leave Payoneer. I was, I was pretty happy there. Um, and like you said, I have been in you know, the financial sector and that was about seven years there yeah. uh, with, with those two companies. Um, and then the guys at Elevate kind of recognized that I knew the Amazon world and sort of you know, the players in the space. Um, and, you know, we were talking with them a bit about a partnership as well. So we had talked a little bit and then, you know, they said, you know, are you looking to leave? Like, you know, we, we are interested in, in bringing you on to help us work through uh, building out a partnerships team at, at Elevate because before that okay. there was nothing. Right. So uh, a lot of, a lot of the aggregator space relies on referrals, right? So referrals yes. in from, other businesses, other sellers, and, and they typically compensate very nicely for those referrals. Um, but you have to have something feeding the funnel. Um, and, sure. and a lot of time that comes in from the partnership space. So I've actually only been there about uh, 10 weeks. Um, so it's still, still pretty new uh, in the sense, but it, it's been a pretty smooth transition in the sense of you know, still in many ways helping and supporting Amazon businesses and brands that sell online. Uh, just in a different way. So, you know, I touched in the beginning uh, about like with our receiving accounts compared to Amazon solution or whomever solution, you know, the fintech companies allowed businesses to save a lot of money compared to, you know, what the standard was or what Amazon was charging on the foreign exchange or whatever it is. Whereas today it's, it's now allowing these businesses to, to realize what they've built. You know, if we look back to, you know, 
those initial couple of years, 2014, 15, 16, 17, you know, in theory, there was no exit option, right? So these entrepreneurs that were building something, were building it to possibly run it into perpetuity, perpetuity, can't speak, uh, but or forever, right? Forever. So, you know, now in the world of, of the aggregator space, there's a ton of options for these brands to take what they've built, capitalize it, and, and potentially have, have life-changing money. And a lot of time it is life-changing money um, to either do it again uh, because you're a yeah. serial entrepreneur and, and that's what you love and you love building things, you love building brands, and you love building businesses, or pivot to something else. You know, I think uh, a lot of the people that we work with, you know, that were paying out millions of dollars, you know, they either say I'm going to start building another brand or they say I want to get into real estate. Right. Or, you know, okay. some of them, some of them have said they wanted to get into to cryptocurrency, um, but to each his own. Right. Like you, every each one of those operates as their own sort of business in terms of, you know, capital up front. <clears throat> and especially if you're coming in, you know, after you exit, you have way more capital than when you started two years ago, three years ago, five years sure. ago. So that ramp period should not be nearly as long as it was initially. Okay. Um, how, how would be, for example, uh, the process? Because some of the aggregators, what they do is they maybe finance uh, the project along the way, work with you and the brand, obviously get their share as well. Or uh, mm -hmm. is it really the, the complete exit? You take over the brand, uh, maybe, you know, you stay in there with another six months, 12 months, help them to, to do the transition smoothly show them everything because it's quite hard if you have a multi-million dollar business, all the, all the operational stuff, all the processes, you know, it's not possible just to, to, just to throw it at somebody right. and then uh, expect that they can do it. How, how would that be? How there is as well teams, I, I, I suppose, uh, uh, available. Yeah. So a little bit of background before jumping into that, you know, Elevate has right now about, I think about 130 people. Um, and about oh, 110 okay. of those are on our operational side. So okay. those are the people that include the brand managers, the logistics, the PPC, the design, the marketing and all that, right? So they're the ones that are operating the brands that we've acquired. Um, and to date, I think we're, we're just over 30 brands um, in, in about a year and a half, two years. Um, okay. So we're, we're moving pretty quickly and, and looking to, to close about or on average, we're closing about one a week. Um, so to your point, that's that's a lot of uh, operational upkeep. And oh, yes. you know, from the beginning, we our two co-founders, Ryan and James, they were they were Amazon sellers themselves, right? So you see a lot of these aggregators come in and have a lot of money behind them, but they don't even know how to operate a business. Somebody probably yes. told them along the line. Just put things on Amazon, they'll sell, you get 20% profit and, and that's it, right? And it's way more complicated than that, as, as you know, and everyone else knows, right? Yes. So, you know, we, we are seeing a bit of uh, struggles with, with some of the other aggregators now having to deal with price compressions due to logistic costs and, and PPC costs and all that stuff. Um, so it will be interesting to see how that plays out. But in terms of deal structure and, and your original question is, Every, every business is different. Um, and, and that's from a brand perspective. I think one of the things that kind of separates Elevate in, in this whole grand scheme of things is 
we are open to joint ventures and partnerships. Whereas a lot of the other aggregators will say, we want 100% exit and we are going to run the brand and you can go, you know, ride off into the sunset or whatever it may be, (laughs) right? Take your money and run. From our perspective, if a brand owner wants to stay on, wants to do a joint venture, that's incredibly exciting to us, right? Because for a couple of reasons, one, that brand owner knows their business better than anybody in our entire business. You know, we could hire even like a former employee of theirs and you know, they still wouldn't know as much as the owner knows about everything to do with their business. Number two, what that indicates is the brand owner still believes in their business. They still think there's a ton of potential there, right? So they don't want to get out yet. You know, whether they, we do a joint venture and, you know, with the, typically how it would work is a joint venture and say it's just 50-50, um, then obviously you share the, the revenues, but then, you know, Elevate would have the first right to buy the other 50% in year two and then year three, right? Or, or you know, buy different okay. percentages. Okay, I understand. So every structure is different, you know, to be honest with you, the most popular structure with us today is still that 100% acquisition. Okay. But how the back end changes is, is the earnout side of things, right? So every earnout um, and is a is a different potentially opportunity for for the brand owner as well, right? If in a similar situation, if you still believe in your business and think you know you're you're growing thirty percent month over month or year over year, you know you can project what you'll do next year, and they'll put in some targets and say you know if we hit X plus Y, you know you'll get X percent of the revenue, and then X plus Y plus Z in year three you'll get X percent of the revenue. So, you know, a lot of times, (laughs) yeah. And and a lot of times businesses are okay with that because what it is, is, you know, it comes back to this whole thing of of a partnership or a relationship. You have to be comfortable with who you're doing business with. Right. And and that's something that that we talk about a lot, right. Especially when, when we go into a joint venture or a partnership, it's we're joining forces with them. So from the jump, we need to be able to align on whose responsibilities are what and and whose responsibilities are that, right? Both sides. Um, And then the other side is, you know, when there is an earnout and you are the brand owner, you have to have confidence that whomever is acquiring your brand is able to operate it and grow it. Um, And and like I said, we've seen some instances where that's not the case. And, you know, hopefully that, that brand owner got some more money up front, but you know, that's not always the, the situation. So it's some, every, every deal structure is different. And you know, how I feel is like we, we play a very fair game, right? We're going to be able to, to get, listen to you uh, and hear what you want. And nowadays when we see those larger businesses, you know, doing 10, 20, 30, $40 million to your point before, that's not a one-man shop anymore. That's not a guy in two VAs, right? That's typically a, a bigger team. Um, an example is we we acquired a business uh, the other day, and and we end up acquiring their staff as well. The owner is actually yeah. going to leave, um, but I think ten or twelve of their staff are are going to come and join and be Elevate employees, right? Okay. Because now heading into their busy season, which, you know, we're in Q4, so that's it's always busy. Um, 
you know, if we acquired that business and tried to put it on our staff or our, our new people that we'd have to hire to do that, you know, it, it would, wouldn't be a smart decision, right? So to bring on their staff and, and obviously they're all excited about that too. Um, and then what we can do is take that niche that they're in and grow that niche, right? Because those employees already know how to do X, Y, Z with that sort of category, with that product line. Um, so it allows us to, to be a bit more strategic about who we're, we're looking to acquire as well. Okay, because my question uh, was, uh, the reason for this question was as well, because when I'm a business owner, or if I'm a business owner, you have, I have like a that's 20, 30 million dollar business, okay? And I built this from scratch, from one product over years, you know? That means it's, it's like my baby, you know? I'm, so I, my, my, my suggestion or my, um, I, I, was, uh, I was supposing that everyone thinks the same. So when they have this business, then they obviously want to stay like 12 months, maybe three years, you know, to see yeah. what, what is this brand they're going to do? Are they, because obviously they don't want to, you know, it's, it's just a, a priority of things. It's not just like, yeah, just give it away, get, get 10 million and then I'll run off, you know, no, right. because, you know, they built it and it's, it's theirs and they want to see what's going to happen and they want to speak a little bit as well about it. So That's why uh, uh, that was my, the, the question actually, uh, why I came up with that question. Yeah, and I, and I think the, one of the things that Ryan, our, our CEO says often is, you know, building a business is personal uh, and, and exiting your business should be as well, right? Yeah. So it should be done on your terms. And that's kind of how I said, you know, we work with businesses, we'll listen to you. If you want to stay on for two years, three years, and if you wanted to, Even if, even if you wanted to exit 100%, but you still wanted to work on the brand that you still have, cool. Like we, we can figure out solutions that, that work for you there. You know, so every situation is different. And I feel like we've done a, a you know, we've acquired 30 brands and between joint ventures and earnouts and different types of paydays, you know, all that stuff has, is, is all over the map in terms of options, right? So after all, it's an emotional matter. And um, brand owners are 100% emotional about it. So that's good to hear that you're really uh, uh, taking care of that aspect. That was uh, really uh, uh, something really deep into it. And uh, yeah, from what I, what, I, what I would expect if I'm a, a brand owner actually and, and want to sell, having exactly, exactly this conversation would give me confidence in um, Elevate and as well, um, in myself to, to just handle it over, you know, this is uh, amazing. Well, what I think is it's exactly that you have to have the conversation that, that ha has to be number one, obviously you need to put your business in a good position to succeed or, or to yeah. exit, but you have to have the conversation. And, and in reality, you have to have multiple conversations to understand what you want and what you're able to get. Uh, not even talking about sort of multiples or paydays, but, To your yeah, point exactly. about structure and to talk about, you know, life expectations and goal expectations, right? Do, do you have a number in your head that you need before you would exit? Cool. But do you even know where your business is valued at today? Yeah, probably not. You know, I think more, a lot of times we see businesses come in and, and do not have a good grasp on their financials, right? They'll just look at QuickBooks and say, this is my number. And it's like, cool but yeah. there's also all these other things that you gotta either 
add in and also take out, right? So, you know, we, we do a number of, of activities on, on education for brands that, you know, if you're thinking of exiting in six months, 12 months, 18 months, there's still a lot of things that you can do today to put your business in a better position. Like one of the simple ones is to, to do your accounting based off accrual accounting versus cash accounting. Um, okay. And I think just from a, from an easy perspective to think about it is, you know, when you look at numbers and we look at numbers, we want to be able to speak the same language, right? So we, we all, and, and probably every aggregator speaks accrual accounting because that's kind of how it is. But also when you're, when you're working in a cash accounting model, there's a ton of things that are, are added back in that you wouldn't want in terms of like a cost analysis. So you know, from an accrual accounting perspective, it's, it's a lot easier. And I mean, and to that point, I'm not an accountant, so I would hire an accountant. And even if you think sure. you're small and you're not just there yet, you know, have someone just at least set you up today so that you can run correctly moving forward and not have to change it when you're already doing a million dollars a year, right? Yeah, I agree. Because uh, all of this sounds very future focused, you know, um, uh, not all, I mean, in general uh, for business, but I mean, as well, elevate what you, what you uh, say about uh, elevate and all the structure inside. Um, what do you think is the, the next steps? Uh, uh, what LA will be taking within the next, I don't know if uh, uh, we can talk now about years, but I think we can talk in months because years will be pretty hard uh, when it's so fast, uh, something so rapidly, it's very hard to predict the next five years. So I will, I will ask only for the next few months. You know? Yeah, I mean, from, from our perspective, what we're focused on today is acquiring more businesses. And, and what has happened over time is as we've gotten bigger, as we've raised more money, the potential deal size that, that we're open to and willing to do has increased as well, right? So now we're looking at businesses doing at least a million dollars SDE or sort of EBITDA a year uh, and okay. up, right? Because when you think about it, we could acquire a business doing 500K a year or we could acquire a business doing $5 million a year. From an operational perspective, they are likely very similar. You know, they yeah. it could be, you know, perhaps two more VAs here and less SKUs over here, but they're likely very similar. So in terms of investment time from even our M&A team and, and our financial teams, you know, what are they going to, what's more valuable to them, like in terms of a dollars and cents. So, you know, because we had now have the ability to, to scale and to do larger deals, that's kind of, of where we are in the next sort of 12 months. I, I, I think it's going to be very telling what some of the other players in the market do first. Um, you know, there's some that have been rumored to go public. Uh, we will see how that goes. And I think that would be amazing. amazing. I'm waiting to that's, see that, you know? Yeah. I mean, that that's aimed for the beginning of next year. Um, I think a big thing for us is to continue to grow uh, our valuation, uh, to continue to raise money, to, to buy more businesses. But most importantly is, is on the operational side, right? Like we want every business that we acquired to be growing year over year, right? So, you know, one of the things that I think we do that, that perhaps other aggregators don't do is we continue to, to look to launch new products under the brands that we've acquired, right? So if you acquire a brand in, in the outdoor space, you know, and, and your brand manager thinks that you can, you know, add something 
here or there to make a bundle or to make a complementary product, right? So, you know, looking to not only grow the brand with the existing portfolio, but to grow the brand with new products into new markets, into new platforms. So if you wanted to say, taking into Europe is a, is a big job for us and, and we're launching a number of our brands in Europe uh, as we speak. Also looking to launch them on Walmart and on Shopify and then all it really comes down to and, and those opportunities are all identified in, in the sort of analysis process when looking at the brand and saying, you know, what, what else can we do? What other levers can we pull to make this brand go and grow and grow and grow? You know, for me, definitely, this is such an exciting uh, topic um, because, you know, in general, the aggregators, what they do and what their, their purpose and, and the mission, uh, especially Elevate Brands, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's amazing what they do and how they do it and how they proceed and all the, all the operations behind. I mean, it's not, it's not just, a, yeah, we're going to buy and do this and that. No, it's, uh, there is a whole structure behind which, is not, which not everyone is able to do. So that's why I'm, uh, I have a lot of respect for all of these businesses, uh, aggregators, and yeah, I'm, I'm just sitting back and watching what is going to happen. And it's really, uh, it's a new era. It's exciting. It's amazing. And yeah, um, I have one last question for you, uh, actually. Sure. Um, what would be your, uh, your message to the world uh, in general in, in these times for entrepreneurs, for, uh, uh, for anyone who maybe wants to change his job or he wants to go in a new industry or do new things? something yeah uh, a message for them all yeah maybe maybe first off um for entrepreneurs and and geared towards the online seller is you know i get asked often uh is it too late am i am i too late to capitalize on this e-commerce boom and, and my short answer is absolutely not um you know there's so many businesses that Like I said, back in 2015, when you were building a business, you didn't really have an end goal. You didn't really have an exit opportunity. Whereas today, it's clear. Build a lean business, build a profitable business, scale it to a certain number, and, and you can capitalize on that. You know, my, my, something I've always said is sellers know how to sell right? Uh, the people that know Amazon know Amazon, that know Shopify, know Shopify, and you are good at that. So what I would say is capitalize on that. And if you're in a rut and you're stuck in a job that you don't really like, you know, sometimes you have to take that chance, but it has to be a, a calculated risk to, to get there. You know, and I, I feel like many people in, in the Amazon world had once taken that risk. You know, uh, nobody started as today, I'm, you know, especially in, in the older days, today I'm an Amazon seller. You know, it's like, you start doing retail arbitrage and buying wholesale and selling retail. And you're like, okay, cool. I'm learning this platform and I'm making a little bit of money. And then I'm making a little bit of more money. And now I can take this money that I've made and invest in private label where my margins are going to increase. And then I'm making more money and I make a complimentary product and I make a little bit more money. And that's always best case scenario. And best case scenario isn't always the situation. So if you hit those hurdles, if you hit those road bumps, you, know, you have to power through. And The one thing that I've loved most about working in the Amazon seller and, and online seller community for the last seven years is exactly that. 
there is a community and, and yes. as a seller and as a brand and as a business, you absolutely have to leverage your community, whether it's regionally, whether it's you know, online or via podcasts or via YouTube or whatever it is, there's so much education out there. And the last point is, if you're an Amazon seller, new or old, and you run into an issue, and we see this all the time at Elevate, you know, we don't know the answer to everything, but it's very, very likely that somebody else has already gone through that issue or been shut down for that reason or you know, had this issue with a black hat, someone attacking their listing, right? So you have to learn, you have to ask questions, you have to be able to reach out to people uh, and be part of these communities for free or to pay. And I know there's a number on both sides, but you know, yeah. start and, and do it at your own pace. And, and there's no doubt that, you know, success will come. That uh, I think so as well, you know, just search and uh, you will find the success. This is uh, definitely um, to wrap this uh, conversation up. Uh, thank you so much, TJ. That was an uh, amazing uh, conversation, amazing information. And yeah, great to have you. And hopefully we speak soon. Yeah. Yeah, of course, Omar. Thank you so much.